So, welcome to the Argus Hydrogen and Future Fuels podcast. This is the second one. The UK is hosting the United Nations COP26 summit in Glasgow, and there's a groundswell of hope that the assembled worthies can agree binding commitments to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. If that 29-year goal is achieved, the scientific consensus is that would limit global warming to 1.5 degrees by 2100. Now, today I'm joined by Graham Cooley, the CEO of British electrolyzer producer ITM Power. Graham, welcome. Thanks very much for having me on, Tim. Pleasure. Thank you very much for making time on your schedule. I know you're busy. So for listeners tuning in, I wanted to set the scene first by discussing the three current existing technology routes to producing hydrogen at scale. Obviously, we've got gasification, which can be applied to solid fuels such as coal or municipal solid waste. Methane, also known as natural gas, can be steam separated. And then there's electrolysis. So, Graham, forget the electricity source for now. Can you lead a layman through electrolysis? An electrolyzer is a device that uses electricity to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. And if the electricity that you use is renewable power, then you make green hydrogen. And you make a a hydrogen, which is a fuel or an energy gas, which is net zero. There is no carbon in the entire supply chain if you use renewable power and you directly couple an electrolyzer. Fuel from water, that's the future. It's arrived. Except it's actually not that futuristic, is it? I think we had Jules Verne describing exactly this in the 19th century. And the first internal combustion engine ran on uh, hydrogen and oxygen as a mix. So 200 years old technology. Well, what's new in the electrolyzer space at the moment? We've had alkaline there for a while, and you're representing PEMRUT. What is that? Let me give you a little bit more on green hydrogen before I talk about the electrolyzer, because it's quite important to understand a couple of things. So one of the reasons that the world is now very interested in green hydrogen and electrolysis is that it gives you energy storage. So when you couple renewable power to an electrolyzer and you make green hydrogen, what you're effectively doing is turning electrons into molecules. The key advantage of this is that electrons are very, very difficult to store, particularly for very long periods of time. And there are devices where you can store electricity for a short period of time, like for an hour with a battery or maybe a couple of hours with a flow cell. But if you want very long duration energy storage in massive volume, the best thing to do is turn the electrons into molecules and you can store molecules either in the gas grid or you can provide them to industry. So what you're doing with electrolysis is um, you're storing renewable power. You're also balancing the grid because an electrolyzer is a, a dynamic load So if you look at it from the electricity grid point of view, you have a load that is absorbing power. That means that load can be used to balance the grid by turning it on and off rapidly. It's called primary grid balancing. So, I mean, obviously, PEM's not the only one to be expanding its capacity. So we've seen um, announcements from ThyssenKrupp as well, moving up towards that five gigawatt nameplate. How old is PEM technology? Because obviously yeah, the alkalines one's been around for a while, so there's been a lot of opportunity to have the Kaizen approach of, of continual improvements, bringing down costs, and improving efficiency, etc. We're talking about a process that started in the 60s. 
developed through the 1970s and the 80s. First electrolyzers, PEM electrolyzers were used in submarines and the technology developed from there. ITM Power has been developing PEM electrolysis now for 20 years. So what generation would you say that PEM electrolyzers are on now? Yeah, I mean, when you look at our own scale up, we're moving from a two megawatt electrolyzer module to a five megawatt electrolyzer module. So it's all about scale now. It's about scale and cost reduction. It's about the size of the electrolyzers themselves. It's about manufacturability. Mm. It's about gigawatt scale manufacturing. And it's also about electrolyzer performance and cost. Cost performance lifetime is the is the set of parameters that every customer buys on. And you need manufacturability as well. What generation are we on? It depends how you gate the generations. Who knows? Yeah. Okay. Well, you talk about the, the scale up and that being crucial to reducing costs. So if we talk about moving from a two to a five megawatt scale, how does that practically help to reduce costs? And it's a very pointed question, but the reason I ask it is that everyone is very interested in how far this can go. And this is why I'm asking about the generations, because it's relatively young, uh, the technology. So the assumption is, for most people, that we're going to see costs continue to reduce where the efficiency is coming from. Okay, so um, the assumption that there will be continuous cost reduction, I think, is a, a relatively sound one. You know, the cost reduction has been very, very solid. If you go back uh, three years, historically, we've reduced the uh, cost of our electrolyzers. When I talk about costs, I'm talking about full system price to the customer. Mm. And we've halved it over the last three years. And we're looking for a reduction of about 50% over the coming three to four years. So by the mid 2020s, the change from a two megawatt module to a five megawatt module. Let me unpack that a bit. So first of all, you want to increase volume of manufacturing and it's easier to volume manufacture five megawatt modules than two megawatt modules. Although actually two megawatt modules are relatively straightforward. But for a one gigawatt electrolyzer factory, you're actually producing 200 five megawatt modules per year. Why five megawatt module? So look, a five megawatt module is the right size that you can pick it up with a forklift. You can put it onto a normal low loader. Logistically, you can work with a module of that size. The way you increase the size of an electrolyzer module is you increase the active area. So if you want to double the size of an electrolyzer, you actually double the area of the plates. Yep. And if you double the area of anything, as you know, you increase its linear dimension by root two, which is 41%. So if you're an engineer, that's a 41% scale up, or in other words, a very low risk engineering step but what it allows you to do then is install fewer modules and if you install fewer modules so long as you don't go above the logistics limit of being able to use a forklift and a conventional lorry then what you're doing is decreasing the interconnections which means the balance of plant is lower cost the commissioning is lower cost and the installation is lower cost and of course maintenance as well so what you do is retain the logistics advantage of modularity and modular Mm. size 
but also decrease the costs of installation and balance of plant. Yep. I mean, it's interesting because in some ways, even two years ago, it felt very much like a almost a, not a cottage industry, but something along those lines where things were still assembled by hand and it was all very bespoke. And this is the first generation of things going through these gigafactories. Nell's putting one in as well up in Norway. So they're popping up now around the world. But this is the first generation really where, where automation is really coming into the process. What is yeah. the natural limit to that? Is there um, is it just demand now? I mean, is, is this a case of just getting higher and higher demand? So where's the limit? If you look at the IEA report, it says the world needs three and a half thousand gigawatts of electrolysis to get to net zero in the next 29 years. And somebody's got to produce all of those electrolyzers. And I think, uh, you know, when you look at ITM power, two and a half years ago, we were looking at the horizon. We were making sure that we understood where the industry would be. And we designed our first gigafactory and we moved into it. And we continue to look at the horizon at the same time as we do day-to-day business. So you've given me some really nice timelines there, because obviously you said that uh, costs has halved over the last three years. And we're talking about you expanding your capacity from one to five gigawatts by 2024. So if they had halved between 2018 and 2021, where do you see your costs in 2024 relative to today? Our traction is in the area of very large scale electrolysis, hundreds of megawatts in size. And the reason for that is that the entry market for green hydrogen is replacing industrial hydrogen. So grey hydrogen in industry that's made by reforming natural gas. We built 10 megawatts at the Rhineland refinery, which we've delivered. We then got the announcement that Shell are working with ITM and Linda to build 100 megawatts at the Rhineland refinery. That's a scale up of a factor of 10. And still, the 100 megawatts only makes 10% of the hydrogen used at that energy and chemicals park Mm. of Shell. And so one refinery of one oil and gas company would take one gigawatt of electrolysis to decarbonize. Why is industrial hydrogen the entry market? And you can look at this from an an electrolyzer deployer's point of view or from an end user's point of view. So from an electrolyzer deployer's point of view, you take the electrolyzer to a demand center. There's no point in doing build and the people will come. You need to actually build the electrolyzer where the demand is and the demand centers are industry. From the user point of view, all refineries are included in the Renewable Energy Directive. So they have to make 14% of their product renewably in the next decade, which means they need a lot, a massive amount of green hydrogen. So they have obligations. And from an electrolyzer manufacturer and deployer's point of view, they are demand centers. So this is the reason that scale is required, because all of the entry markets are at very large scale. That's really interesting. So you, you just mentioned that demand is coming from these areas. So this is uh, the, the areas of typical captive grey hydrogen, which is produced from unabated fossil fuel use. Yeah, it's coming from these traditional users. I think you touched on it, but is the demand, is it push or pull? Is it, as you said, largely policy, which is driving people towards this? Or are companies being pulled into it by either themselves or demands from shareholders and supply chains? I think there are a number of drivers. 
and they're not just carbon footprint. So carbon footprint is incredibly important because the only net zero energy gas is green hydrogen. You also get energy storage. So I pointed those two things out earlier. One other driver is a very old fashioned one, which is the most powerful of all, which is that the cost of renewable power and the cost of green hydrogen has come down significantly. So if you want to take it from a commodities traders point of view, the feedstock for green hydrogen is renewable power and the feedstock for grey hydrogen, uh, blue hydrogen is fossil fuels. And the price of natural gas has gone up at the same time as the price of renewable power has come down. And we've gone through the crossover. Now, anyone listening to this podcast is going to argue, oh, yeah, but the change in the price of natural gas is only temporary and it will come back down again. So let me add an additional point, the point about volatility. Mm. So if you connect to renewable power with a PPA, you have a fixed price for your green hydrogen for at least a decade if you can get a 10 year PPA and the fossil fuel market will fluctuate. That's the first point. You get low price volatility with green hydrogen. And then the final point is fuel security. So if you look at the UK, we import half of all of our natural gas. If you look at Germany, 35% of all of Germany's energy comes through the gas pipeline, which goes through the Ukraine and comes from Russia. And I think something very fundamental has happened in European energy thinking. And that is that energy politics is now part of the mix. Fuel security is part of the mix. Price volatility is part of the mix, as well as straight economics. And all of those things point you towards green hydrogen. So from the point of view of a... uh... (laughs) a reporting agency that watches commodities traders. I wish you only partial success in driving off the captive grey hydrogen, only because uh, I'd like to see a spot market uh, (laughs) emerge. So it would be very nice to see some of this moving through third parties rather than just being entirely captive. But that's just uh, on my wish list. Let's get into the electrolyzer input briefly. So electricity can come from any source to power your electrolyzers, of course. So that's grid or non-grid. And there's lots of discussion as well about business models for hydrogen production both electrolytic and non-electrolytic. How do you see installations uh, evolving with electrolyzers? Do you see futures of um, grid balancing with electrolyzers being put in in various locations or out on the grid? Or do you see it moving hand in glove with direct renewables coupling? Yeah, so the first thing to talk about, I think, here is the way that we're deploying renewables. Let me take the UK as an example, but I think it can be taken as a general point. If you look at the next round of offshore wind, 40 gigawatts of offshore wind in the next decade, the next round, the negative price protection for the renewable energy players is eliminated in the next round. They have to find their own method for protecting themselves against negative pricing. So what does negative pricing mean, first of all? So in the old days, if the price of the electricity uh, that you were offered went negative, the wind power was curtailed and you were paid a fee. Now, the obligation is for the renewable energy company to supply with a negative price 
and they have to accept that negative price. So the levelized cost of renewable power has to include that negative pricing and will be bid on that basis. So first of all, I would predict that the next round is not going to be below four pence in the way that the last round was mm. because of this negative pricing. But what it does then is it shifts the risk away from the electricity grid and all of the negative press about a wind curtailment and it prices it into the CFD. Okay, how will the renewable energy companies deal with this? Well, they have to supply the energy. What they could do is buy an electrolyzer and dump the power at the electrolyzer and make a useful product called green hydrogen and sell that to industry or the gas grid. Now, what does that do? You can look at that as a new product for the renewable energy producers. So in the old days, you can say well, their only product was electrons so that they could supply to the electricity grid. Now they can diversify, they can make molecules as well as electrons, and they can decide at what time of the day they either make molecules or electrons. And perhaps they arbitrage between them, which as a commodities guy, Tim, you'll be delighted about that. Um, <laughs> arbitrage is always fun, right? But that's energy storage and it, it's grid balancing. But it's also this, it's joined up thinking between the electricity grid and the gas grid and industry. And I mm. think that is fundamentally important. In Europe, this is called a sector coupling. Yep. So my view of the way that legislation should work is this. Rather than talk about if you're going to deploy an electrolyzer, it needs to be uh, the additionality of new renewables. I'd go the other way around. I'd say when you are building a renewable energy scheme, you should have the obligation to also build a long duration energy store so that your renewable power is used most effectively. Obviously, the, the ability to store electrons as molecules gets us past the problems we've seen recently where you know the, the turbines aren't necessarily spinning as much as people would like to see uh, in the North Sea. And it's a total game changer as well for the renewables industry. So previously you had the curtailments we've discussed and um, yeah, the intermittency issues. So if you can get away with the intermittency, and the need for curtailments. I've seen lots of people now in areas with high renewables potential saying, great, now we can go to 100%, but let's not stop there. Let's go to two, let's go to 300% of grid. And that way we can look at both storage, obviously, in the form of hydrogen, as well as exports in, in other forms, uh, ammonia and what have you. Do you think this fundamentally changes the business model for renewables? I think it does change that business model. Let, let me just try and explain quite simply what I think that change is. When you deploy more and more renewable power, you need more and more energy storage because of intermittency. To me, when you develop a renewables industry, you should develop long duration energy storage alongside it so that as you increase the amount of renewables, first of all, you don't increase the amount of curtailment. You increase the effectiveness of renewable power which then will drive down the costs, which will help it to be further deployed. So I see the industry developing where as you plant up with renewables, you plant up with electrolysis equipment, make green hydrogen. Those two go hand in hand. They are mutually supporting industries. 
Mm. You've got some joined up thinking in the energy industry because what you're doing is deploying more and more renewable power and at the same time deploying more and more renewable molecules that can be used for industry or the gas grid. And look, the world only uses energy in two forms. It uses it in the form of electrons or in the form of molecules. And um, we have to decarbonize entirely, get to net zero, both on electrons and on molecules. And you can't get to net zero on electrons without using a lot of them and storing the energy from them as molecules. And of course, in energy, more molecules are used in the energy industry than electrons are. It's about three to one ratio. Yep. So it's joining up the thinking between the electricity grid. A smart policy always has to wither away in about a decade. And I think that a CFD for green hydrogen would drive the industry forward enough so that in a decade you won't need it. It's interesting, actually, because um, when I see CFDs being discussed, it's colour agnostic at the moment. From what I've seen, it seems as if a distinction isn't being drawn between different carbon intensities of hydrogen produced. COP26 is underway. It's funny, we started the podcast as saying, you know, there's a lot of hope around this from people looking for binding mandates to come in. It seems odd, actually, to me that across the democratic world, we're hoping that our elected leaders pursue policies to maintain their mandate. But that's uh, where we are. From your perspective, not ITMs, I mean, an electrolytic hydrogen enabler, what policies would be meaningful at COP26? What would smart policies be? Okay, so look, there's a number of reasons why I think COP26 is very important. The first one is this, that the Paris Accord was signed in 2015 and um, everybody who signed up to that agreed that within five years they would develop a revised plan Mm. with revised targets. Okay, because of COVID, we didn't have the 2020 meeting. 2021 then, COP26 is the point where everyone has to increase their commitments. So this is the first point that Mm. we're looking for increased uh, commitments to targets. Think uh, between uh, the Paris Accord and uh, COP26, we had the UK government as the first government declaring net zero by 2050. And many governments have followed that. And I think you've seen actually quite a lot of progress now between Paris and COP26 in terms of those commitments. But what we need now is an acceleration. What we have seen in those last five years is the first very definite manifestations of what climate change means. Mm. Okay, now let me just say to you that one of the communities that have realised just how serious this is, is the financial community and the capital markets, because what they see is their assets at risk. This is, I think, a very important point. You can't achieve the energy transition without the capital markets and without the big industries, oil and gas and the big renewables players. Actually, you need to mobilise huge amounts of capital. Mm. So although joined up plans are important for carbon, joined up plans are also important for financial commitments and financing. 
And I think this is key that the um, investment meeting in Windsor was a very important meeting as well for those things to happen. Why is everyone worried? Well, they're worried because China and Russia are not coming to the meeting. Now, how important is that? I think it's the financial markets making commitments that is more important than political commitments and actually attendance. So Mm. the indicators for me would be the money right now and actually focusing on incentives and capital mobilization. I would say that the oil and gas industry moving to net zero has been driven more by the city than it has by politics. Mm. I mean, it's interesting because we're seeing, we are seeing some areas. So, for example, IMO, I think they're saying 70% reductions in emissions output by 2050. Had a number of nations just coming forward and saying, Let, let's bring that to net zero by 2050. Japan, the UK, uh, I think Norway and some others. So you're seeing some accelerations um, happening. But as you say, it's where the rubber meets the road. That's really important because, I mean, the UN feels that we are dangerously out of sync with global climate targets. And I actually, I, I suppose that 1.5 degrees, it sounds to the public like a very reassuringly small number, and it is 79 years away. But it is important to note that no one thinks really that we're, we're being close to achieving anything of that now. And the current extrapolations are actually a, a rise between three and a half to eight degrees by 2100, which just scrubs huge amounts of the global landmass off the map in terms of habitation. So there is a lot of work to be done at this point in terms of firming up targets. Do you have optimism for these talks? I'm always optimistic. (laughs) Uh, And I think um, I do believe in technology solutions to a lot of these problems. I, I would say this, what you said, one and a half degrees sounds reassuringly small. The problem is mechanisms accumulative. Let me give you an example. If all the permafrost melts, it's full of methane. Methane is a stronger greenhouse gas than CO2. It's the reason we have to stop using a methane infrastructure and the reason we have to transition the oil and gas industry to green hydrogen. But it's also a reason why we need to stop temperatures rising. Because when the sea and when the ice starts issuing huge amounts of greenhouse gases, then it's irreversible. And you go into a spiral that you can't get out of. Let me give you another example. You know about compound interest rates. Mm. Uh, You have a small change and then you multiply it over years and years and years. And the accumulative effect is very powerful. So just by saying uh, an increase is small doesn't mean it isn't a kind of doomsday device. You've been pushing scale up for some time and you're targeting five gigawatts. I've no doubt in my mind that the future demand is there. But does your order book support the scale up? We have a backlog and then we have a tender pipeline. We're the only electrolyzer manufacturer that publishes a tender pipeline. It's the number of quotations we've made over the last 12 months. And that currently stands at 1,011 megawatts or a gigawatt. And the curve is very interesting. If you you look at the trajectory, it starts very slowly. And over the last six months, it's gone almost vertical. It looks like the very bottom of an S-curve. Yeah. Now, when you're at the bottom of an S-curve, if you say, I'll wait for the climb to happen before I invest, and I have an 18-month period to build a factory, I've missed it. 
And, you know, a classic thing that British companies do is they're very conservative about the way they view the future and American companies. And I'm overly being culturally biased here, but American companies go, we know what's going to happen. We're going to invest in the future. Mm. When the future happens, they're the ones well positioned. We're not going to take the classic British cottage industry model. We are scaling up for one of the most rapidly growing, most significant new markets to emerge. And we will be a world leader for that reason. Stirring the heartstrings of a Brit overseas here. It's good stuff to hear. Let me ask you this then. How long does it take to add a line? You talked about your pipeline. Let's say all your sales guys are just blasting it out. How long does it take to actually add a line into your factory? So we we do that progressively as the demand comes through. So, you know, first thing you need to know is what your product mix is. And also you need to implement some of the important cost reductions that we're making. And so when you put lines in place, you don't want to do it too early so that you don't know exactly what you're going to be making. So the final question I have is, obviously, you guys are scaling up. When I look at uh, the renewable industry and how things went there, uh, then obviously Europe was the cradle for a number of renewable technologies. Solar disappeared off European shores. Is Europe going to remain competitive for electrolyzer production, do you think? I tend not to care about the history, to be honest with you. A lot of people dwell on what happened in the past. A lot of people dwell on manufacturing and where it's going to be in in the rest of the world. We're part of an incredibly rapidly developing industry. We're going to stay ahead of the game in technology and manufacturing. And with our deployment partner, Linda, scale deployment as well as manufacturing. We take a very, very positive and proactive approach to this growing market. And what happened 10 years ago in solar? Well, I'll let you worry about that. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, look, thank you very much for giving us time today. Wish you all the best of luck, COP26. And thank you very much. You're very welcome, Tim. Thanks for all the enjoyable questions. And thank you to all of your listeners for listening. The Argus Hydrogen and Future Fuels podcast will return. 